Welcome, uh, all of you that are joining us today. Uh, real quick, for the people that are joining us remotely, if you are with us on television or at one of our locations, maybe joining us online, uh, my name is Nicholas. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am just uh, really uh, honored for the opportunity to have your attention uh, right now. So uh, I want to begin today's teaching with a thought, and, uh, and it's this, that all days are not equal. Um, some days mean more than other days. If we were to talk about birthdays or, or wedding days in, a, in more of a positive sense, maybe like the day that your child was born, those days are just different than other days. And um, in a more negative direction, if we were to talk about like the day that you lost your job or the day that you got evicted from your apartment or the day that you attended the funeral of someone that you loved, the weight of that day is different than other days. It just is. And some of you are the kind of people who, if I were to ask you about a particular event that happened in your life, you could tell me where you were, who you were with, what time of day it was when you heard the news, probably like the clothes that you were wearing. Because some days matter more than others. They just do. Some days are milestones. Some days are sacred. All days are not equal. And so with this series, what we're trying to suggest sort of is that throughout like the 1600 years of church history, people have gathered together, Christians have gathered to remember the last few days in the life of Jesus, the last week of the life of Jesus. And it's quite remarkable because the last seven days of his life, out of 33 years of his life, the last seven days make up about a little bit more than a third of the entire Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will spend almost a third of their time talking about seven days out of 33 years. And if you include Luke's account of Jesus like traveling to Jerusalem to die, it's more like 50%. It's about 45%. It's almost half of the time the Gospel writers spend writing they're talking about these last days. Now, we ended last week with a conversation about Maundy Thursday and this moment when Jesus was betrayed after having a last meal of sorts, some sort of like initiation or graduation ceremony with his disciples. And now we turn our attention to the day that we call Good Friday. But we need to keep something in mind whenever we read the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels are intended to be understood within a specific context. They are written to a particular group of people in a particular place at a particular time. Now, it doesn't mean that all of us, many, many years later, can't also take something from those words, but it's important to remember that they're writing to an audience. It would make a difference if we're telling a story about, say, motorcycles in Sturgis, South Dakota, or like Queens, New York. Do you know what I mean? Context is important. And so it was true with the gospel writers. And you may have noticed then that each of the gospel writers sort of have a different telling of Good Friday. The events of the crucifixion are different. They're doing this because for Jewish writers, it was less important to get like the chronology of events right. And it was more important to make sure that we were communicating what the story means. Because the thing is, you can get the facts right and the meaning wrong. It doesn't mean that you can get the facts wrong. Okay, but you can get one and miss the other. Let me give you an example. I am married to Tiffany Hecht, and I could give you a number of facts about her, right? I could say she's 5'9, she has green eyes, 
She was born in April. Uh, I could give you data points, but they would never begin to express like what she means to me. Does that make sense? The gospel writers want to make sure that we're walking away with the meaning of the story. We need both. The first of those gospel writers to write down his story was Mark. Mark wrote his gospel 20 years after the death of Jesus. And Mark is writing to a particular group of people. He is writing to Christians who are living in Rome. This is a very important detail. He's writing to Christians who are living in Rome. And because his is the first gospel, I want to take his account for examination uh, with you today of Good Friday and of the crucifixion. But before we do that, I want to pause to ask you a question. Uh, rhetorically, non-rhetorically, which is the one where you don't answer? Rhetorically, I think. Don't answer. Uh, uh, inside your head. But what is the gospel that Jesus came to preach? What is the good news? Or maybe we'd ask it like this, like, what is the gospel that got Jesus killed? Think about that, and we'll come back to it in a minute. This is an inscription that was found on a stone in the first century. It says this, the birthday of our God has signaled the beginning of good news for the world. It seems like a kind of, inscri uh, of uh, inscription that you've heard of. But this inscription was actually written before the birth of Jesus, and it wasn't written about Jesus. It was written about the first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. See, the most common alternative to the way of Jesus in the first century was not Judaism or Gnosticism or Hellenism. But the greatest rival to the message of Jesus, without question, in the first century was the imperial cult. It was by far the biggest religion in the world. Men and women who worshiped the emperor of Rome as if he were a god. And it's been only the last several decades that this really came to light, that most of the people in the first century believed that Caesar was God. In fact, the apostle Paul, as he sort of walks out what the early church looks like, he will compare Jesus and his kingdom to Caesar in Rome more than anything else. And so does Mark in his gospel. Let's look at how Mark starts his book. Verse one, chapter one, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. It appears innocent enough, right? Let me teach you three Greek words. And you may know the uh, English version of these. You may even recognize the Greek, but I want to teach you three Greek words that are important for you as we go forward, okay? The first Greek word is pronounced evangelion, evangelion. And this is the word that's sort of the root of the, of, of, uh, the English word like evangelical or evangelism. And it simply means the good message, the good news or gospel. This was a message that went out when a new emperor came into power. Or the current emperor had uh, like an exciting event happen in his life. When Caesar had a son or when Caesar was victorious in battle, a gospel went out to all of the Roman world of which Israel was a part. A gospel went out announcing the good news of Caesar. This word predates Jesus. And in the first century, by far, more, mo most people would have associated the word gospel with news about Caesar than with news about Jesus. 
Gospel was used to tell the entire Roman world about his accomplishments. Caesar's decrees were called gospels. So it's sort of like right under our nose in the Christmas story that we read from Luke chapter two, right? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a gospel, that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. The people worshiped Caesar as God. In fact, like coined currency in the first century had a picture of Caesar on the front and then on the back it said, living son of the living God. Caesar Augustus is born 30 or 40 years before Jesus was. Second word I want to teach you is the word kurios. It uh, literally means like the Lord of the world. Lord, uh, this was a word that was used for the emperor, for the one who sort of required and demanded your loyalty and allegiance. But Paul will use this word repeatedly to refer to Jesus. And in Mark chapter one, verse three, he will do the same. He will use the word Lord, a word that would have been known for Caesar to talk about Jesus. So Mark's gospel, he's, he's already creating like this rivalry between uh, the most worshiped deity in the world and whoever Jesus is, right? Third word, ecclesia, ecclesia. This Greek word means an assembly, a community. And Ecclesia was a community who recognized Caesar as Curios, as Lord. But Paul will talk about Ecclesia's, uh, the way that we do today, he will translate it as church, as a kind of community that recognizes that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Now I'm building all of this up to you for a very important reason. Let's come back to Mark chapter one, verse one. Notice how he starts his gospel to the people living in Rome. The beginning of the good news, the gospel, not about Caesar, but about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is putting Jesus in competition with Caesar. So with this in mind, what does Mark have to say about Good Friday? It's coronation day. When a Roman general came back from battlefield victory and was enthroned as Caesar, he would go through a Roman coronation. And as best as I can understand from my research of watching the movie Frozen, a coronation is when a new ruler or emperor is crowned. There were eight stages to a Roman coronation. And what I want you to see here is that Mark is going to rework the Roman coronation to crown not Caesar as Lord, but Jesus as Lord, and he's gonna do it with the events of Good Friday. It's absolutely fascinating, okay? So let's move on. Stage one in the coronation of a Caesar was the moment when the Praetorian gathered. This was an elite group of soldiers who would gather in the Praetorium, which was like the encampment of the military, and they would bring Caesar to the center. And they would like, think about like the end of the movie Rudy or like the end of the Super Bowl. They would lift Caesar up and they would start cheering and shouting and celebrating who Caesar is. Now I want you to notice in Mark 15, verse 16, how he begins to tell the story of the crucifixion. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. Mark makes a point here to connect the palace in Jerusalem with something that they would have recognized, the Roman audience would have recognized the praetorium. And where is Jesus? He's surrounded by soldiers. The second stage in the, or in the coronation of a Caesar was the proclamation of Caesar as Lord. 
The soldiers would take the purple robe from the statue of Apollo and they would place it on Caesar's shoulders. And then they would take this crown made of uh, like leaves and gold called a Stephanos and they would put it on Caesar's head and they would hand him like the royal scepter and the royal staff. And they would continue to laud him, hail Caesar is Lord, announcing his, uh, uh, his rule. Mark chapter 15, verse 17 about Jesus, he says, they put a purple robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, hail king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Jesus is also covered in a purple robe, but out of mockery. And rather than a Stephanos, he's given a crown of thorns that are sort of like crudely shoved down onto his skull. And the royal scepter, the royal staff is used to beat him as he's mocked. The third stage in the coronation of Caesar is the procession. Caesar is dressed in robes, crowned as Lord, and now he's led through the streets of Rome for all to see. And behind him is a bull that will later become Caesar's sacrifice. The blood of that bull will sort of like enter him into the divine pantheon, like immortality, right? And the soldiers continue to follow him through the city, shouting his name, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Mark chapter 15, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, then put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is mocked and led through the city for all to see as well. Stage four. I know this is a lot. Stay with me. Stage four, the highest hill. The procession makes its way to the highest hill in the city called the Capitolina. It's the literal translation is Head Hill. In fact, the story of how the city of Rome was founded goes like this. A group of soldiers were returning from battle one day, and when they came upon this enormous hill, they, they happened to be looking for a new city to sort of like establish their civilization. They came upon this enormous hill, and one soldier walked to the top of the hill. And when he did, he looked down on the ground, and he found a human skull. And he raised the skull up and he named it Capitolina, which means like head hill or skull hill. In fact, uh, the Romans would, uh, they would call all of their most important cities, like their head cities, capitals, a practice that like we still use in our country today. But Caesar would stand atop of head hill. Mark 15, verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, technically, Golgotha means head hill, not skull hill. But Mark wants to point out like the imagery here, right? They're taking Jesus to the place of the skull. Can you see how Mark is trying to compare Jesus and Caesar with this coronation? Go ahead. Uh, step five, the symbolic offering of wine. Caesar is offered wine mixed with myrrh. He acts as if he's about to drink it, and then suddenly he pulls back at the last second and declines to sort of show that he's better than the common folk. He can control his indulgences. The wine is then poured out onto the sacrifice of the bull that's walking behind him. Mark 15, 23. Then they offered him, Jesus, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus is offered wine also, but Mark is careful to point out that like Caesar, he is in control. He declines as well. Stage six, the sacrifice. The time has now come for the letting of blood. 
The bull is sacrificed on behalf of Caesar, again, as I mentioned, so he could enter into immortality. Mark chapter 15, verse 24. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Jesus will demonstrate his kingdom by shedding his own blood, not the blood of another. Stage seven, the ascent of Capitolina. Caesar is joined by the two most powerful men in his kingdom, one on his right and one on his left. They will be his second and third in command. And they ascend the highest hill for all to see who is in power. Mark 15, 25 through 27. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his left and one on his right. Jesus climbs his own Capitolina, Golgotha, with two criminals. And this is an incredible statement that Mark is making about the value system in the kingdom of heaven. In this kingdom, even criminals, one who is, one who is apologetic and sort of likable, and the other one who is as loud and arrogant as the day he was born. But even criminals are treated like war heroes in the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, stage eight, the acclamation of Caesar. The crowds have gathered round and now they begin to cheer and shout, raising their voices. And it was tradition at this time for the crowds to sort of demand a sign. Make believers out of us, they would say. Hail Caesar, show yourself. And they would expect some sort of supernatural event that would uh, sort of demonstrate that the gods approved of this Caesar. It said that at like the coronation of Nero, there was a solar eclipse. This acclamation is approval of Caesar from the gods, in a sense saying, you know, he is who we thought he was. The gods are pleased. This is a little bit longer, but Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 38. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Maybe you've wondered why that last detail is included here. Other gospel writers say that a thick storm covered the entire land or that uh, tombs broke open. Matthew says that dead bodies walked out of their graves and like took their place on earth again. If, uh, if we could all jump on a plane together and we could fly across the ocean and land in Tel Aviv, we could get on a bus and we could drive to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I could walk you down into the basement to a place that most people don't know is there called Adam's Chapel. And the belief behind Adam's Chapel is the Bible tells us that when Adam died, he was buried in the center of the 
of the earth. Again, meaning over facts, the center of the earth didn't mean like the geographical center of the earth for Jewish writers, but it meant the most important place in earth, which was this same Temple Mount where the temple was, where Jesus was believed to have been crucified. So if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they believe to have the rock where the cross was sort of dropped in. But beneath that rock, in Adam's chapel in the basement, is Adam's tomb, where his bones were buried. And the legend says that as Jesus is dying on the cross and the blood comes down his brow, it falls off his chin, reaches the soil, works its way through the dirt, through the clay, through the rock, all the way to Adam's tomb. And one drop falls on his bones, and immediately he springs back to life. Paul says later, uh, so with one man, Adam, death entered the world. Now with this new man, Jesus, there is new life. It's like the writers are saying, oh, you want a sign? You want a supernatural event? How about this? The temple curtain tears, eliminating the gap between humankind. The sky goes dark, dead bodies come out of the ground and start walking around. Right after this, the centurion says, um, surely this man was the son of God. He is who he said he was. I tell you all of this to say that with Good Friday, Mark is doing something incredibly brave here and fascinating. He is crowning Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. And he's doing it in this like beautiful and um, almost painful way of comparing like the death of Jesus with the enthronement of the emperor. Jesus is Lord, but a different kind of Lord all together. So to come back to the question that we asked uh, a bit ago, what is the gospel that Jesus came to announce? Well, I think at least part of it, it's a complicated question, but at least part of it is whatever Jesus was talking about when he mentioned the kingdom of heaven like this realm or world or time where things happened as God intends them to happen. Remember in Matthew 6, he teaches his disciples to pray, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That uh, the prophecies at his birth said uh, there would be peace on earth because of him. Goodwill toward humankind. When I was a political science uh, undergrad major, uh, I remember learning about the, pro the, the Pax Britannica. Uh, Pax is a Latin word for peace. Uh, the Pax Britannica uh, occurred like in the 15, 1600s because uh, the British Navy was the most powerful Navy in the world. And rather than fighting battles with every other country to uh, once again prove their dominance, they sort of issued this decree that uh, there will be a British peace and if anybody has conflict with someone else, they're going to have conflict with us, right? Um, they, they kept peace through intimidation, through fear. This was similar to what Caesar Augustus did in the first century in the Roman world. Caesar is actually known, renowned. Augustus is renowned for bringing peace to the world, an end of wars that had lasted forever. He has a very long reign as the Roman emperor. But the way that he kept peace was through brutality. He just killed anyone who disagreed with him. Anyone who spoke up against him or challenged Rome, he just killed them. He eliminated them. This was the method of power. And without getting into like a debate about pacifism or justified war or anything like that, can we at least ask the question, are we actually bringing a lasting peace 
by just like dominating all of our enemies, like by just killing anyone who opposes us. Uh, aren't we at least, even if it's justified, aren't we at least signing up for having to sort of like maintain that level of power and dominance, even in the best scenario? This is the way that the world understands power. Is anything ever reconciled if we just dominate our enemies? So the peace of Rome was built with the sword. It was built with bloodshed. It was built with violence and through dominance. See, there is a weak kind of strong. It looks like it's strong, but it isn't actually. It's temporary. It doesn't last. It looks like strength. Caesar looks like he is in control, but he isn't really. It's actually weakness. You've known people like this in your life. Uh, we've witnessed politicians. We witness politicians who behave like this now. And it's always been the case. That the people who have to show the most strength at first are actually weak. But Jesus will bring peace on earth in stark contrast to the way of Caesar. He doesn't bring peace by conquest, but by forgiveness and reconciliation, not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but instead by becoming the sacrifice himself, by spilling his own blood, by suffering for all the world, by suffering for the sins of all the world. He is not crowned with power and majesty and adoration. He is crowned with pain and humiliation and suffocation. It isn't glorious. Sometimes we move too quickly through the Easter story. It's, it's every bit as vicious and ugly as we think it is. But Mark says, Mark says, Caesar is not Lord. That's not the good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the real, the true Lord of the world. See, if there is a weak kind of strong, there is also a strong kind of weak. It looks like it's weak at first. It looks like it's losing. It looks like the light is going out. But it's actually strength. The kind of strength that endures. The kind of strength that finishes the work. In his birth, in a manger, in his life, as a as a, a, a poor uh, like laborer and in his death as a sacrifice for the world, Jesus is revealing God's plan of redemption. He's revealing the character of God. This is what God is like. God doesn't dominate us to get our attention. He doesn't demand our righteousness because it doesn't work. He becomes the sacrifice and he dies for the sins of all of the world. And that means all of your sins, which I'm more comfortable saying. But it also means all of my sins. And I know the kind of monster I can be. I know what I'm capable of. His death is for me and for you. And it is the only way to bring reconciliation. It is the only way to restore a people a person who is hell-bent on destroying himself, who spends his life pursuing things that destroy him. You're no different. <laughs> we are 
We are ugly people at times, and we are brutal people at times, and we are murderers, and we hate, and we exclude, and we create others. And the way that Jesus demonstrates his power is to take all of that on himself. He will become the hated one. He will become the excluded one. He will become the other. He will become the sacrifice for all of us. He takes it on himself. And through the events of his coronation day, his crowning as Lord, the love of God is poured out into the world through his broken body for peace and reconciliation to restore you and to restore me and to right relationship in God in all of our woundedness and in all of our brokenness and in all of our shame. You cannot fall too far away. And so Fred Beekner says, it was for this reason that of all the possible words they could have used to describe the day of his death, the word they settled on was good. Good Friday. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would remind us when the world around us shouts a different message, remind us of what true strength is. Remind us of the sacrifice that was made on Good Friday. Remind us of who is in control. Remind us of what weak strength looks like. And remind us of what strong weakness looks like. Make us the kind of people who are transformed by the sacrifice of Jesus so that we can move into our worlds and become sacrifices ourselves. That we could be like him in his crucifixion. God, we love you. We praise you. Be with us this week. In your name, amen.